It's the ultimate in second chances, the article begins. A Buddhist temple in Thailand offers an opportunity for a fresh start. For a small fee, of course, you can step into one of nine big pink coffins that dominate the grand hall of this temple. And every day, hundreds of people take their turns climbing in for a few moments as monks chant a dirge. Then at a command, the visitors clamber out again, cleansed, they believe, of the past. It's an opportunity to die, leaving the past behind. To rise up again, newborn, and to make a fresh start in life. Even if you don't find it attractive to pay a fee to have a pre-funeral funeral, there is something attractive about starting over, isn't there? Hitting the reset button, where you can leave behind your past mistakes, the haunting guilt, the darkening shame, in order to begin anew. Now, tamer methods, you know, they involve something like moving to a new city, finding new religious practices, going to a different church, even cutting your hair, shaving your mustache even. But do any of these things have power to bring about new life? Our passage this morning points us to the work powerful enough. The work that is only powerful enough to bring about this new resurrection life. A new beginning. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 to 15. As you turn there, I'll give you some background. This letter to the Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul in the first century, around 60 AD. And he had heard about the Colossian Christians' new faith, as well as their struggles with false teachers that were in the congregation. And so he wrote to them this letter, strengthening them in their faith, assuring them that they really have the real thing. The false teachers, they were saying, oh, you might claim a new life, a full life in Jesus, but no, no, that isn't really this, the new life. That is really the full life. And so he writes to them, making it very clear who Jesus is and what the benefits of salvation are for anyone who repents and believes. I'll go ahead and read read Colossians 2, verses 6 to 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled with in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power, powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us 
with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Clearly, this holds out the power found in Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Paul here, he he wants the Colossian Christians to know and for us to know what it means to follow this Jesus in the new and full life. So we look at what it means to follow this Christ in the new life by looking first at what following Christ involves. That's point number one, what following Christ involves. At least this is a brief summary there in six to eight. And we see that uh, following Christ involves receiving Christ. Following Christ involves receiving Christ. Now, some of you guys who might be visiting today, uh, you might have heard like on the radio or somewhere previously, uh, something to the effect where accepting Jesus Christ into your life is equal with becoming a Christian. Those two things oftentimes are synonymous, but what Paul talks about here is something very different than what many Christians today think accepting Jesus into your life actually means. In my experience, a sappy, sort of sentimental view of Jesus is attached to accepting Jesus into your life. Something like where Jesus is uh, the lover who woos you because you're so attractive and so all you have to do is accept his love. It's a sappy, sort of sentimental view of love. Uh, So he says here that these Christians have received Christ, right? Therefore, having received Christ, he's going to go on and give us encouragements here. And no doubt receiving Christ involves accepting Jesus who loves us. Very clearly that it's not that, you know, God loves his people. And it's in that love, because of that love, that he sends Jesus Christ to die on the cross for sins. So certainly, in accepting Jesus Christ, we accept Jesus who loves us. But it's so much more than that. And verse 6 makes it really clear. I mean, all those names make it really clear. It just tells sort of like the whole entire story of the gospel. Receiving involves embracing, affirming, rejoicing in everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus has done. And we turn to verse 6, and it's so clear there. They receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. So if you're ever wondering, you know, who is Jesus? Well, he is Christ Jesus, the Lord. And those things tell the whole entire story. So Christ, when they receive a Christ, they receive the Messiah, the anointed one of God. That is what the word Christ actually means. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah or the anointed one. And scripture says that this Messiah is the promised one of God. All the way back in the Old Testament, God promised that he would bring about his purposes and shower blessings on people all through this Messiah. So in receiving Christ, they received a Christ. In receiving Christ, they receive him as the long-awaited one who brings blessings upon the people. But not only do they receive Christ, that is the Messiah, they receive Jesus. Which means God saves, which comes from, a, uh, comes from the name Joshua. So in receiving Jesus, they receive him not only as the one to bring blessings upon the world, not only as the one on whom all the promises of God are fulfilled, but they receive God as Savior. 
Meaning that we are the people who need saving. And anyone who receives Christ acknowledges I need to be saved from my sin. And Jesus is the one who saves. God saves is his name. And here he is in the flesh, right? In receiving Christ Jesus, they also receive him as the Lord. Now, it doesn't only say Christ Jesus Lord, as in there might be many lords, the Lord of the house or something. This here in Greek, is, is there's an article, right? It's the Lord, the Lord. There's only one. When God's people translated the Old Testament into, which was the Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew, largely, when it was translated into Greek, uh, they chose the Greek word kurios for the Hebrew name of God or Yahweh. So today, if, you, if you're reading the Old Testament and you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that there refers to Yahweh, or Kurios, that is, the Lord. And so when it comes to the New Testament, what's the word that they choose to, to, to give to Jesus? When they realize that Christ himself is before them, Christ Jesus the Lord is before them, you see people confessing their sins and worshiping him, calling him my kurios, my Lord and my God. This is Yahweh come in the flesh. We know that Yahweh is the creator of heaven and earth from the Old Testament. He's the creator of man. He's the creator of everything we see and everything and everyone depends on him. We recognize that he is the sovereign one who's over all the elements, sovereign over all the people, the one who alone is worthy of our worship, the one who judges and the one who forgives sins. That's all the Old Testament background of the Lord. Jesus comes along and they confess, this is the Lord my God. So in receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord, they receive him as the sovereign one, the king over the universe and certainly the king over their very own lives. I mean, you see the supremacy of Christ here in the book of Colossians. I mean, turn back to Colossians chapter 1. And this is a major theme here. I mean, you just look at verse 15. And if you're asking the question of who is this Jesus, it's so obvious here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, basically everything. He is before all things there in 17, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or supreme. Verse 19, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, all those very things that he made. He brings about universal pacification and then salvation for his people, people who actually believe in him. So here he holds out the supremacy of Christ. So following Jesus involves receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord. The Christian life also involves living life in this Christ, right? So therefore, since you have received him, so walk in him. If you've embraced the fact that Christ is the Lord, the sovereign one over all things, then walk in that reality. And Paul here, he holds out the harmony of those two very things. Since you've received him, that is, he is king, you now submit to him as his servant, the one who is saved also as his son or as, also as his daughter. He says, so live in that reality. Live in that reality, he says. <clears throat> That's what it means by walking in him. I mean, imagine being an orphan, let's say. Imagine not having anything, not, 
And then on top of that, having to fend for yourself as a child, scrapping for your food with other people, fighting for just so you can survive, having shelter, having money. This is your very own survival. And then uh, some people come along and all of a sudden they want to adopt you. So here, these aren't just parents. These are truly loving parents. Truly loving parents where you know that they always have your good in mind. They always want to protect you. And they say, look, all of my resources are now your resources. And I give them to you for your protection and because I love you. Now, most or many adopted folks might turn up to dinner with their new adopted parents, thinking that they still need to scrap for their food, right? Might be a little bit suspicious of your adopted parents. Imagine them setting out this marvelous banquet for you. I mean, just you. They set out everything for you, and then you fight with them. You know, you're stealing food, putting it in your pockets, thinking that, you know, one of these people going to kick me out. And it's so strange because everything they have is already yours. They've already made it clear to you. So you could fight for all of that, or you could embrace the fact that they really are who they say they are. That they really have adopted you, and everything they have, they give to you. They've made you your daughter. They've made you their son, an heir to their estate. So what is theirs is yours. And then you sort of move forward, embraced in that type of love. Having received them as parents who genuinely love you and are willing to exhaust all of their resources for you, for your protection, for your good, for your love. So then you can actually begin living life in that family, embraced in their love. That's what he's talking about here when he says, walk in him. Walking in the reality of the truth of Christ Jesus, the Lord. They have been rooted, it says. How are they to walk? They are rooted They are to be established in the house, just as they were taught, just as they already received. And they are to abound in thanksgiving, knowing that that God has saved them. That's security, right? And then from that security comes bold assurance that our parent, our father is really who he says he is. He's not going to turn his back on us. He really gives us the full life. We see, too, that following Christ also involves guarding yourself from things that don't accord with Christ. Look at there, verse 8. That's it, don't accord with Christ. So, imagine here, you know, this, uh, this adopted analogy. Imagine if other people outside the house are spreading lies about your father. Here, Paul says, do not listen to them. Don't listen to lies spoken about your parents, lies about their character, their ways, their rules, their good intentions, and their actual love. Having received Christ Jesus, the Lord, the Colossian Christians were made at one with God. So he kind of reminds us, he's going to remind us, he has already reminded us of all the blessings that come with being adopted into this household, being made alive here. They've, They've been made at one with God. So once they were apart from God or enemies or hostile towards God because of their sin, here he says Jesus has reconciled them through the cross there in 122. He has now reconciled in his body. He's made at one by taking the very judgment that you should have deserved or that you did deserve and by embracing it, dying on the cross for your sins so that you could be at one. This is a new relationship. There's forgiveness to be had. 
They've been adopted into his family. Everything he is is for them. Everything he possesses is theirs. That's incredible, isn't it? I mean, if you're thinking about assurance and wrestling with it. God, Jesus, who is before all things, in whom all things were made, and in, all, in whom everything is sustained, all of that power is for you to ensure that when he saves you, that you are preserved all the way until the end. But the false teachers, they were spreading lies about their God, his character, his ways. Look at there, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. So nobody take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, we've been mentioning a lot about the false teachers. Uh, now, we kind of don't really know the particulars about what exactly they're teaching. I and mean, next week when Oscar preaches, he's going to be speaking a little bit more in depth because he actually lists uh, in Colossians. Look there in uh, 2.18. I mean, you see that there are a lot of false things that they're teaching. They're insisting on an ascetic lifestyle. They're living a mere life in such a way that denies the fact that everything God made is good. They're encouraging the worship of angels or worship of inferior things. They're going on details about visions. Uh, we don't really know too much about this, but they were in the process of rebranding Christianity. They're repackaging things and saying, this will give you the full life. And they're trying to sell it. And so he says, see to it that nobody takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit. So in this rebranding, they're taking the stuff of the world and the, the very heart of Christianity and mushing it together. That's called syncretism. Taking two things and pushing it together. You, you see kind of the syncretism, or at least a little bit of it, or a heart of it, uh, in so many different cultures. You can see it in nominal Christianity, right? Uh, now, our... our this culture is, is becoming less and less so-called Christian that even values Christian morals. But, you know, let's say 50 years ago, there was a time when a lot of people just valued Christian morals in general. And so even if you didn't believe the gospel, you might look at those morals and say, oh, yes, Jesus is a good person because he teaches those, those general type of morals. You know, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's sort of like the heart of Christianity. So there you're basically taking the, the stuff of the world, just general morality or the stuff that you might value, and the stuff of the gospel and smushing it together, removing all of the other stuff, the very heart of Christianity. You might say, I love the morals, and so I love Jesus, but that might not really be the real Jesus of the scriptures who dies on the cross for sinners. So in some ways, that's, syncretist, that's syncretistic as well. Now, when he says, don't be taken captive by philosophy, he is not saying that the study of philosophy is worthless. Uh, so if you're here as a philosophy major, don't think here that Paul is, is attacking you. That's not what he's saying. Here he's thinking particularly about this specific philosophy that is being tied together with Christianity. The philosophy that is behind the ascetic lifestyle in a way that denies Christ is the giver of all things. It's behind this worship of angels. It's that kind of stuff. Um, that's what he's getting at here. I mean, when it comes to studying the scriptures, there's a, whole, there's a whole branch underneath the topic of the study of theology. That's philosophical theology. That's good and helpful stuff. Uh, we also see Paul, right, familiar with actually the philosophies of the day, using those things to talk to other people about the gospel. So if he's employing those things and familiar with them, I mean, clearly it's not a bad thing in and of itself. 
But whatever this philosophy was, uh, it is marked by empty deceit, things that stand directly opposed to the truth. And it really was lies against God here, empty deceit. I mean, if Christ is the Lord, let's just say he is the Lord, the supreme ruler of the universe through whom all things were created, right? Who is before all things, the one who is worthy of all worship. Then to have somebody come along and say, you need to worship angels too, or even you need to pray to so-called saints is really an insult to the Lord. It is not the truth, and it, because it isn't God's truth. It stands opposed to God's truth. I mean, if Christ is the only one to stand between people and God, which he is, he is the only mediator. There is nobody else who can take you before the throne of God. And so to introduce a whole order of angels, or whatever you want to introduce, is an insult to the glory and the magnificence and the supremacy of Jesus Christ the Lord. Paul says here, you can, they can say whatever they want to, but at the end of the day, it is human tradition. And if merely human, they, th those things would forever be produced by the hearts of men who seek to justify their consciences or excuse them. That really comes out of, of man's heart. But not only that, they would always be influenced by the spiritual powers behind these errors and sinfulness. He calls them their elemental spirits of the universe. Human tradition as well as elemental spirits of the universe. But here, in light of the Colossian heresy and the other heresies of the world, the gospel stands completely other. The gospel, what the, the gospel that the Colossian Christians heard and received we're not words of deceit, but if you turn back to one chapter 1, verse 5, it says there, they received the word of truth. This here is the word of truth, as opposed to one that comes from deceit. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul rejoices at those Christians there. They, quote, received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. I mean, I was at Panera talking to a friend uh, again this week, and he was, I was, he was asking me what I was going to do. I was, I was preparing another sermon. I see him basically every Thursday because I'm always at Panera on Thursdays. And he says, so you're going to save people, huh? He's an atheist. And I said, well, you know, I don't save. I'm just preaching the gospel here, and God will save. And he says, oh, yeah, but this is just words of men. And I said, well, actually, if you read the Bible, it's very clear that they aren't just words of men. I mean, the, the epistle to, written by Peter says that the, the stuff of the, the Bible, all prophecies and all scripture, were not produced by the, the will of men, but they were produced as if they were carried along by the Holy Spirit here. So if you read scripture, they themselves recognize that this is not merely the words of men. I mean, you don't just simply add to the words of God knowing that the punishment of doing that is death. I mean, who just says, yeah, I recognize that. I'm just going to add some more. This is the very words of God here. Verse 8, all these things are not according to Christ. So there you see the Christ focus again, right? Supremacy of Jesus Christ is the main theme of the book. Don't let anybody mess with Christ, he says. What you have received, Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him and guard yourself from things that are not according to Christ, because what is at stake 
is nothing less than the fullness of life. So if the false teachers are saying, look, you don't have the full life, here comes Paul saying, look, we we have a supreme God who brings about universal pacification as well as reconciliation and forgiveness of sins. And don't you let anybody mess with that gospel. Because what is at stake is the character of God as well as the full life. And this is the next point here. In Christ, there is the full life. In Christ, there is the full life. So introducing all of these other things sort of strips the Christian life from its fullness. And this is the tragedy of the false teachers. Uh, So they're saying, look, we have a solution for the full life. Let's improve the gospel. But in their so-called improvements, they only downgrade the supremacy of Christ, the power of the gospel and the fullness of Christ. The Christian life lived in Christ. So if Christians have received Christ Jesus the Lord, God himself, look there in verse 9, who is this God? Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, right? If someone's going to introduce that to you and your thinking as you embrace the gospel, your, your response really should be, why do I need an order of angels to worship? Why do I need anybody else to pray to or anybody else to give honor to when I got the real thing, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and i follow that god once you start adding man-made beliefs about who this person is you know there's gonna be a downgrade of jesus christ once you start adding man-made stuff or man-made rituals things to do that are extra biblical you begin saying look this over here is the full life and then the fullness of life in christ gets downgraded But Paul says that those who received God himself in Christ possess the full life now. We don't need anything else. Look at verse 10. You have been filled in him. He is the fullness of God that dwells bodily, or the fullness of God dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. There's a play on words here. Jesus, the fullness of God, is the one who fills us. So, should you take this to mean that, let's say, you actually become God? You know, does this mean that that just as the Father's fullness dwells bodily in Christ, and then God in Christ's fullness now fills me, does that mean that I'm becoming God too? The answer is no. That wouldn't make sense at all in relation to what he's written about the supremacy of Christ, right? If Christ is God, and then we too become gods, I mean, that doesn't make sense of the letter at all. He upholds the supremacy of Christ being God and him alone. That's it. And so for anybody to say, yes, we actually become gods, is just not making sense of, of the book of Colossians, nor is it making sense of the entire scripture. All, the, all that he says here, all this language is, is a play on words that convey the fact that Christ, that in Christ there is fullness of life. So if you want to know what this fullness of life looks like, so if you're visiting with us again and you're wondering, okay, my friend is a Christian over here. How do they understand this fullness of life? What does it mean? He actually explains it in 11 to 15. You have this whole explanation of this full life, salvation in Christ Jesus, the Lord. 
So again, previously, Paul had spoken about how God delivered us decisively out of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son. There is a clear and clean break. Rescue has been made for those who turn from their sins. And here's an explanation a little bit more. And he speaks about it in two categories, circumcision and baptism. Now again, if you are visiting with us today, this does not mean that God needs you to go out and make a a scheduled appointment with your doctor. You can do that. You have the freedom to do that in relation to circumcision. But God does not command you to do that. I could speak more on that, but uh, I think it's pretty clear. Uh, Circumcision was the Old Testament physical sign. It was a sign that spoke of a spiritual reality. Circumcision was a physical sign that spoke to a spiritual reality. So God, way back in the Old Testament, to Abraham, promised Abraham people, land, and someone from their offspring, Abraham and Sarai, would be a blessing to the nations. People, land, blessing. And to sort of seal that covenant promise, God gave them the sign of circumcision. And I think it's, it's pretty obvious how it was to work. They're supposed to look down and say, whoa, I'm, I, and be reminded that I am of the people of the blessing. Someone from our line will bring about this great blessing to the nations. And even if you were a non-Jew, which almost all of us are here today, if you joined the people of God in the Old Testament and worshipped Yahweh, the Lord, you too were circumcised if you were a man. And, and the putting off of the flesh of the foreskin spoke of you leaving your old life and cleaving to the sovereign Lord who saves So Paul writes to the Colossian church here and says, you too were spiritually cut off from your old life of sin. You cleaved to the Lord who saves. Look there in verse 11. In him you were circumcised. Now he's writing to Gentiles here. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. They were cut off from their old life in Christ. You were cut off, he says, in this spiritual circumcision. They... It says there, put off the body of the flesh, that is the sinful flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. So he's not talking about when Christ was eight years, eight days old, according to Jewish custom, when he was circumcised. He's not talking about that. The circumcision he speaks of is the cutting off of the land of the living. It's Christ being cut off from the land of the living, speaking of his death and his resurrection. They were circumcised, that is, cut off from their old life of sin, in Christ being cut off from the land of the living. So in Christ, our old lives were cut off, that is, they died. That's death to the old self, right? So if you guys want to hit the reset button even now, and you want to escape, let's say, from all your past mistakes here, Jesus says that that actually happens in his death. If you want the old stuff to go away and the guilt that haunts you and the shame that haunts you, he says that happens only through the death of Jesus Christ as he bears the wrath and the sin that we've committed. This is why he talks about the next concept, baptism. Physical baptism depicts a Christian spiritual death to the old life. It's a picture. When you see it, you're supposed to be reminded of the gospel. It pictures the Christian spiritual death to old life and resurrection to the new life. Again, so if you want to start anew, 
How is it that we can have this new life? It's because Jesus Christ got up from the dead. Verse 11 says there, they have put off the body of the flesh, that is their old life marked or characterized by hostility to God. It says, but, or how does it, how does it come about? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So you got those you got those dual concepts, right? If you want to hit the reset button, there, for a while me and my uh, children were playing this game called Rayman, and uh, when we were playing the game, it's like you got to run and you got to collect all these little coins or something. And I was so determined in my perfectionism to get all the hundred coins that you could get. And there were times where I would hit the reset button so many times, reset, reset. I wanted to start anew, even in this even in this idea of playing this game. I wanted things to be perfect. I mean, that's in all of us, isn't it? To get rid of the old and to start anew. And Paul says that happens in the death and resurrection in Christ. Verse 12, buried with him in baptism and raised to new life in Jesus Christ. This here is union with Christ. When we receive him as as Christ Jesus the Lord, we are united with him. And so everything that he is is for us. And everything that he possesses is for his children. And so we're supposed to walk in this union, this togetherness, like we're married with the greatest groom there possibly could be. Whose riches know no end. And in him there is fullness of life. I mean, go back to 114 and you see how he speaks about this union here. Chapter 1, verse 14. It says, In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then flip over to 2, 3. So again, if you're thinking, I have friends who are Christians. Uh, what's the deal? What do they say is so great? It, verse two, or chapter 2, verse 3. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, right? These are inexhaustible things. Let's go down to verse 11. It says, in him you were circumcised, that is your old flesh has been put off. In verse 12, you have been buried with him in baptism. Verse 12 again, you have been raised with him through faith. And then to summarize what it means to be, for this, all the blessings of being united Jesus, look there in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. How do you go from deadness and flesh to alive? What transports you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son? Where on one hand, this side over here was marked by death. Have you ever seen dead bodies? Um, for schooling, I went to this L.A. chiropractic college uh, in high school, and we got to see cadavers. So we got to pick up, you know, people who have, their lungs, uh, you know, were all black. They had died from lung cancer. You know, their chests are cracked open so that we can examine them. Um, that's dead. That's what characterized this old life? How do you go from that life to living? From dead to living? He says right here, God made us alive, having forgiven us all our trespasses. 
This is in Christ. This is with Christ. We are transported from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in Christ and with Christ. And you know, for those of you who want to hit the reset button, there might be many different reasons why you want to hit the reset button. The primary one, God says, that you should not ignore, the primary thing that you should be concerned with is a new relationship with God. You want to hit the reset button because you know that something might be wrong with your relationship with God and you don't care. You know that Christ should be worshipped, but yet you know you're kind of like adopted into the family or as if you were, but always longing for something outside. Always longing for what other things are, are being played with. And so you idolize those things and you worship those things. And if those things are really your God, then that's evidence actually that you don't know the Father. I mean, I mean, I mean if those things are really your God on a permanent basis. Worshipping the pleasure of sex. Worshipping your own ideas of your career. Worshipping your own relationships. If you permanently do those things to the neglect of God, it actually reveals that there is something really wrong with your relationship with God. And he says, new life can be had in Jesus Christ through the forgiveness of sins. That should be, or that thing should be on the forefront of your mind. How is it that we are, have, been, have been made alive? It is through the forgiving of our sins. He made us alive having forgiven us all our trespasses. Or having been forgiven, we then are made alive. So in light of Christ's death and resurrection and his work, how could we even think about adding things for us to do to escape some of the guilt that we have? To find substitute gods that pale in comparison with the supremacy of Christ. It just simply downgrades the work of the gospel. Look there in 14. And be reminded of what God alone can do. He cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He alleviates the punishment that we rightly deserve and lays it on Christ. So the legal papers that were against you, the judgments against you, God sets them aside. Not in the, not in the sense that he forgets them or ignores them, but he fulfills those legal demands and places them on Jesus Christ. And that's what it says by he nails it to the cross. It is done. It is finished. All of those obligations are fulfilled. Have you guys ever had a creditor after you? I remember I was a victim of identity theft. Someone had opened up a credit card in my name. They maxed it out, $10,000. And I had private investigators tracking me down. Um, and they would go to the, to the extent where they would go to my next-door neighbor's house. And I don't know if you remember this, Dad. But our next-door neighbor would get this, this note from a private investigator basically slandering me, saying, if you know that this person is next door to you, you know, please let us know. This is what he's done. And so when I, when I got this note here, I didn't know that this credit card was even open or that this credit card was maxed out. Um, but we, we wrestled with it. And I wrestled with it, trying to prove my innocence that I didn't do this stuff. And finally, after months of trying to prove my innocence, they finally left me alone. Finally. There's just like this huge weight lifted off of me. But imagine not owing $10,000. 
Imagine owing your life. Imagine having Satan and death on your heels, clawing after you, knowing that you owe them your life for following their ways. But God, in saving you, reconciles you through Christ. Christ pays your debt. When the creditor comes to collect, what confidence can we have, right, When uh, for the Christian... To be able to point to the one who has paid everything, who owns all things, in whom are hidden all the treasures of the universe and say, he's got me covered. You cannot touch me. I mean, when it says there that God nails these things to the cross, right? You should feel Satan and death recoil because the power of Christ strips them of all of their weapons. That's what it means there in 15. Satan's weapons are stripped and he, that is Satan, is put to open shame through the triumph of his son. And so the Christian can have great assurance from the security won for them on the cross that he's got my back covered. He forgives all of my sins. And so for the Christian, when when guilt starts creeping up, ungodly condemnation we're talking about here. That you just are wrestling with. I can't forgive myself. You're supposed to be rooted in the fact that Christ has already forgiven you. Nailed it to the cross. Satan is stripped of all of his weapons. And that universal pacification that is said to be had in chapter 1. It's already happened. Your salvation has already been won if you're a Christian. And so we we await the day when finally... Satan will be thrown into the fiery pit and the key will be thrown away forever. We're supposed to delight here in the security that we have. Not get distracted with all the man-made stuff and the traditions that we can uh, heap onto ourselves in order to earn some sort of forgiveness. But we're supposed to go to God, to Christ for salvation. Isaiah 43 verse 25 says, I am the one. Stop right there, right? I am the one. Who wipes out your iniquities. And I will not remember them. You know if you're visiting again. And you know yourself not to follow this Jesus. This salvation. This wiping wiping out. This new start is for you. If you would turn to him and say yes. He is the supreme one. Christ Jesus the Lord. And he promises forgiveness of sins. Everything he is is for you. Everything that he owns could be yours for your salvation, for your forgiveness. If you would turn from your sin and believe on him, repent and believe. And that alone is what has the power to give you a new start. Christ offers you a new life, decisively made decisively one a break from the old is made in christ's death and in his resurrection and he brings new relationship forgiveness of sins through his cross Um, this right here is the lord's supper and it points us to this new start that we can have i mean it's no surprise that this too points us to the gospel just as baptism does Baptism pictures our death with Christ and our resurrection with Christ. He wins for us new life as he dies on the cross and is raised from the dead. 
So we are reminded here in the breaking of bread and the drinking of juice, we, re- we are reminded of the fact that his body was torn, his blood was spilled in order that we would be free. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper just as Christ commanded his disciples. Through the breaking and of bread and the pouring and drinking of the fruit of the vine, we remember and recognize that Christ bore the wrath, the judgment that we rightly deserve. And so we have new life, a Father who welcomes us in his home. Christ intended this Lord's Supper to be celebrated by local churches of baptized believers who have placed their faith in the death, resurrection, and return of Jesus Christ. And if you're visiting with us, and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you can just simply let the elements, the bread and the juice pass you by. We're glad that you can observe us, but you can simply let them pass you by. Christians, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, be reminded that this supper comes with a warning. As 1 Corinthians 11 reads, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as the music team comes forward and the ushers come forward, and as the elements are being passed out, take some time to examine yourself as we sing Behold the Lamb.